Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right. Well, we are working our way through Philippians on the podcast, and we are ready for chapter 1, verse 27. And I'm excited because today uh, we're going to be able to get into what I think is really the heart of Philippians. Of uh, In chapter 2, there's what some people think is an early Christian poem, uh, whether written by Paul or someone else, that has to do with the humility of Jesus and his deity. And it's uh, just a powerful motivation to humility. But we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, we've introduced the letter to the Philippians, and we've talked about Paul's own situations, like the Philippians would have been worried as to how he was doing. So the after the Thanksgiving and prayer section, he relates three different rough situations that he's viewing with joy in Christ. And now he's going to really get to some application as uh, we get into the end of chapter 1 here. Yeah, so why don't we go ahead and jump right in. Let's read chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven... Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Okay. So uh, verse 27 is one that uh, it was the CSB that you're reading from that I was like, whoa, that's a different translation. Mine says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And how does yours read again? It says just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, so I was like, man, that's that's pretty different. So I did a yeah, little where, digging. Where does this word citizen come from? Right, I was like, I never saw the word citizen in there. But it turns out that um, the word translated an ESV, like let your manner of life, um, is related to the word for citizen, the same word that's used in chapter 3 when he says um, that our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3 and verse 20. Uh, this is like the verb of to live as a citizen, which again, it's hard to boil that down. It's like one word in the Greek, and uh, you have to use a lot of English words to get that concept. Mm-hmm. So manner of life is one way to translate it, but live as a citizen. And I think they added of heaven as well. He's clearly not talking about just their Roman citizenship. Exactly. Yeah, kind of context. of the letter. Yeah, exactly. And so... As you live as citizens of this place, there's a way that you should live. And he says you need to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's something that we've talked about in other episodes that we've done and in other seasons, about walking worthily of the calling with which we've been called. Ephesians 4 talks about that. And that we are reflecting the gospel message in the way that we've been saved and in the way that we live our life. And so... The whole reason that they get to become citizens of this kingdom is because Jesus died for them. So now you need to walk worthily of that same gospel that saved you. Mm-hmm. 
So this, uh, you know, we, hit, we touched on this in the introduction about how Philippi was a Roman colony and they would have been Roman citizens, the people born there. And so it's really cool to think about how he's saying, listen, your standard of life is not just about, you know, the world around you and the standards of the culture of the Roman Empire. It is about the gospel. And one of the first things he's going to talk to them about is unity. And say, listen, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that may be a uh, reference back to whether he lives or dies um, in the previous section. Um, But he says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so there's kind of a uh, three different descriptions here. One spirit, uh, one mind, and then striving side by side that uh, I don't know how much of a unity problem there was at Philippi, but this is going to be one of the uh, regular exhortations in the book, is you guys need to stick together. It's easy for uh, division to get into any size group, and it may just, again, be Paul kind of being on the safe side and saying, just make sure you're sticking together. Unity is, is really important. Yeah, the language Paul uses in this section, too, is just so kind of military language. I mean, he's talked about them being citizens, but it's also like he's talking about them being an army that bands together, you know, stand firm together. Uh, in verse uh, 27, uh, contend together for the faith of the gospel. So you got the word contend. Don't be frightened by your opponents in verse 28. It's a sign of destruction for them, but if your salvation that is from God. And so it's kind of borrowing what I think is military language suggests you guys need to band together and be a united front, like Stephen was just emphasizing. And he'll get more into that in 2, 1 through 4 as well. Mm-hmm. So verse 28 kind of puzzled me for a while. Like, what's a sign to the enemies of their destruction? And But it's a sign of your salvation. Like, what's going on? I think the idea is this, that if you've ever watched a movie and there's like a, a bad guy coming after... A little good guy and they're being all intimidating and closing in on the little good guy but the good guy can see the like bigger good guy behind the bad guy is kind of the idea and so the little guy is like not afraid and is not being intimidated by the bad guy because they know the bigger picture they're not just looking the enemy wants them to look at them and be oh no i'm afraid and like all this but they're not being intimidated they're not giving into that pressure because they see the other side that's kind of the picture here is that don't be afraid um of your opponents when you are not afraid it will be a sign to your opponents that their day is coming like i'm afraid of you because like you can hurt me now but you're going to get what's coming to you because God's in control here. And so that's kind of the picture I get at yeah. least with like the lack of fear shows the enemies that their destruction is coming. Yeah, and I, I think it's also tied to the unity that he was just talking about. When you all are banded together and they see that we're not plucking any one of them apart, it's a sign of destruction to them when you guys are united like this. So that, that's how I've also always taken it. But both ideas certainly tied together that you know we're standing our ground we're not moving we're sticking together and that's what the lord's church needs to be they need to be looking out for one another mm-hmm. and so the chapter ends by saying that god has granted to us two things that for the sake of christ one we believe in him and two we also 
suffer for his sake. And it's important to see that God grants both of those things. He gives us everything we need to believe in Christ, to make that choice, to trust in him. But he also, it is part of his will that Christians are going to suffer. I mean, Paul will write to Timothy and say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If Jesus suffered, we're also going to suffer. A disciple is not above his master. Jesus talked about this frequently in his teachings. And so one of the things that he's giving them to help them not be afraid of their opponents is to say, listen, you need to remember that God has granted you not going to believe, but also to suffer. Like this is just part of the deal. And you need to be prepared for that. One of the biggest things that make it, makes a difference in how we handle suffering is our, our expectation. Like if we're expecting something big and hard, we do a whole lot better than if like we're expecting something easy and it turns out really hard. Mm-hmm. As we were saying, you need to set your expectations to suffer. If you are going to follow in the footsteps of Christ, he was a man of sorrows. And people hated him for bringing the light into the world. And so you need to be prepared that people are going to hate you too. And of course, Jesus, again, says this on multiple occasions. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. And so Paul is saying, God has granted these things to you. To believe, but also to suffer. And then he points out, I suffered. (laughs) Yeah. So he was using himself as an example back in chapter 1 to teach them how to rejoice in all things. But here he references what is likely his persecution he endured in Acts 16. Like, hey, I did suffer. Do you guys remember? I was arrested, and then I got beaten before there was a trial, and then there was that whole fuss that we talked about in the in the first episode of this season. And you guys have seen me go through this, and now you're seeing me go through it again in a different way as I've been imprisoned. And so Paul uses himself as an example, as he often does. Mm-hmm. So this teaching on unity is really going to spill over into chapter 2 um, as he continues to help them say hey here's what you need to press toward Uh, let's read 2 1 through 4 it says so if there is any encouragement in christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So it's an interesting kind of turn of phrase that Paul begins with in verse 1 and 2. So he talks about encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship with the Spirit, affection and mercy. And Stephen, am I reading it right that the idea is if like there's any exhortation I can give you, if there's anything that I just really want to emphasize here, in and through these things, you can make my joy complete by thinking the same way and being united in this way. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I've taken it is uh, basically these are rhetorical things. Like, of course there's encouragement in Christ. Of course there's comfort from love. Of course there's participation in the Spirit. And so he's basically saying, like, if these things mean anything to you, if you have received any comfort and joy from what God has done for you, then you need to work at being unified. Yeah. And the things that he calls those things out of, so the encouragement in Christ, so just listing them off, Christ, love, spirit, mercy, those are the four things that band all of those Christians together to right. begin with. And so it is cool that all four of those are invoked as he's telling them, you all need to think the same way, have the same love, and be united and intent on one purpose. Yeah. And man, it is hard to tell 
any group of people to do that. It is hard to tell two people to do that. I mean, I think about marriage, and it's so funny the different things you vow to each other and you say to each other on the the day you get married. But when you get into the thick of it, you're like, oh, wow, like, we have two different purposes. We have two different minds. We have two different think, uh, ways of thinking. And Paul is calling on us to be of one mind, to be united in our thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's all centered around Jesus. That's right. You know, uh, we were talking about this hymn the other week, uh, Will You Not Tell It Today? Mm-hmm. And I mean, really the whole thought behind that song is like, if the name of the Savior is precious to you, you know, if his love has been tender you know, to you, then won't you tell people? Yeah. Like, And so I think that's kind of the same reasoning here. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any of these things, then, I won't, see. then won't you be unified? Like, yeah. come on. Uh, like, that, this is worth pursuing. And so, again, we don't know all of the issues that would have gone on in Philippi. We do know in chapter 4 we're going to get to two ladies named Yodia and Syntyche who are not getting along, and they need to agree in the Lord. Um, we don't know if it was broader than that. Sometimes when there's one squabble in the church, it leads to more. That's right. But um, one of the things he's going to focus on is you guys have to stick together. You've got to be unified. And the way to unity is through humility. Mm-hmm. That is the key. Like if you ask someone, like, what is the number one trait that is essential to unity? People might say, oh, well, like, maybe it's compassion or maybe it's, you know, patience. Good, good like, leaders. Those are all good yeah. things. But here, and also in Ephesians chapter 4, the first thing on the list is humility. Yep. And if you think about that, pride is really at the root of almost every single type of division. It's someone deciding, I want my way, and I'm going to make sure I get my way because my way is right. And there's not humility or a willingness to compromise, a willingness to work it out. And so pride is the thing that divides God's people, mm-hmm. and humility is the way to keep them together. Yeah. So it's really cool to see the number of times that humility is shown as the key to unity. Yeah, and so verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. This kind of humility that Paul is talking about starts with us being able to set our wants and our desires aside so that we can serve other people. And so your whole motivation to serve others should not be, well, what am I going to get in return for this? Or what gain will I have because I did this nice thing? But simply, don't do anything out of those selfish ambitions, but just be humble. And you consider others more important than yourselves, and your actions are how you're going to reflect that and show that. Mm-hmm. How we look at others is such a fundamental part of our mind, of our outlook on life. And if we're looking consistently down on others, like, well, their needs are important, but mine are more important. I got to make sure I get what I need first. We're just, it's going to be a lot of friction. (laughs) And of course, the the worry we have, well, if I don't stand up for myself, who's going to stand up for me? Mm And if what if Jesus had had that mentality? Yeah, yeah. Um, we would all be lost. And that's of course where all this is going in the next few verses. Is we're all going to come to Jesus. But as we think about ourselves in verses three and four, I mean, he doesn't say like literally, don't care about yourself and just you know be mean to yourself. Like that's not what he says. But he says, don't look out just for your own interests. You've got to look out for the interests of others. And it's so much easier for us to see our own interests 
We don't need someone to tell us our own interests. But to know the interests of others, we have to be receptive. We have to be humble. We have to listen well. And so these exhortations that Paul is giving are just so crucial for the transformation of our minds. I mean, Romans 12 is going to talk about a lot of these same principles of, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you do that by not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be willing to do low tests or associate with low people. And don't think of yourself way up here. Um, I think some of the words in there in Romans 12 is like literally like be low-minded mm-hmm. is like the idea um, in, a, in a good sense, like humbleness of mind that when you look out at others, you see them as up there. Again, not in a self-deprecating sense, but in a like, oh, I, it's important for me to make sure they get what they need. And that's really how we ultimately get what we need. Um, when we live selfishly, we end up more miserable than ever. And that's kind of the upside down nature of it, right? Is we think, oh, no, I have to cling to my own things. When we do that, we're the ones who suffer for it Mm -hmm. because we're at the center of our universe and nothing's ever good enough. But when we say, I'm here to serve, and if I give other people what they need, I will eventually get what I need. That's the way to joy. Uh, This is the key to unity, but I think it's also the key to joy is to really put other people ahead of ourselves. And so verse 4, we'll just read it again. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Waking up every day, asking, how can I serve someone else? And if the whole group has this purpose, everybody's going to be taken care of. You know what I mean? Like, If everyone thinks about this, then everyone is going to have what they need because everyone's thinking about each other. So uh, it's really good to see this encouragement that Paul has given. But this encouragement is backed by an even greater example, an example that's even greater than than Paul himself, but the example of Jesus. So let's read verses 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." It's hard to overstate the importance of this text in the New Testament. It's just the foundation of so much of the fuel for living the Christian life. Is you've got to look back to the cross. Because at the cross, you find the greatest possible display of humility in the universe. Uh, it's Again, it's impossible to overstate this. Because he starts at the very, very top. And is going to work his way all the way down to the very bottom of like position, uh, you know, honor, uh, dignity. And so you think about this. Uh, he starts out and he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so he's talking to them as a whole, saying, Y'all need to have this kind of attitude. Here's how Jesus did it. And he starts, and there's kind of like six steps to this. Mm-hmm. Um, starts out with being equal with God. Yeah. He's in the form of God, and he's equal with God. And again, there's lots of complicated things about the unity of God. But 
Jesus the Son existed in complete equality with God the Father. Yeah. Uh, they're completely deity, and he's going to become completely human and yeah. still be God. And that's why the CSB says, uh, after it talks about him being, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. I, I personally really like that translation because the idea is Jesus didn't look at his deity and go, how can I serve myself and make things fantastic for myself? He didn't exploit that right that he had. But verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He intentionally and on purpose set that aside and said, I'm going to become like my brethren. The book of Hebrews talks about that. And I'm going to suffer like my brethren. Mm -hmm. And so he becomes a man. And that's why, as we were going through the Gospel of Mark, it's interesting. There are times where Mark is emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man. He is fully human in, in his time on the earth. Yeah. And I think it's important to note here, when it says he emptied himself, I don't think he emptied himself of his deity. He didn't become less God, but he became fully human and fully God, takes on the form of a man. Again, that's hard to explain in our terms because there's nothing else we can compare it to. I mean, a silly analogy, but one that begins to head in that direction is like if you woke up one day as an earthworm, like just imagine that for a minute. Like you can't really see, maybe you have a little little bit of a light detection, but like you eat dirt, you have no arms, no legs, like you just woke up as an earthworm. Like what would that be like? <laughs> that doesn't even begin to compare to what Jesus did in coming to earth and becoming part of his creation being born of a woman taking on the form of a man it's just breathtaking the more we think about it and that it doesn't end there so like what's interesting to me is he could have taken on the form of like an angel or something and that still would have been a created being there's a sense in which an earthworm and an, an earthworm and an archangel have more in common than an angel and god yeah because the earthworm and the angel are created beings yeah. and god is uncreated and so it's just mind-blowing. So, so the six steps here, you got the first one is he's equal with God. The second is he becomes a servant, which again, the angels are servants. They're messengers of God. He could have done that, but he didn't just become a servant. He was born in the likeness of a human in verse uh, seven. And then he continues to humble himself in verse eight by becoming an obedient yeah. human. Not just a like, well, he's a human, but he's bossing everybody around and kind of acting like God, which there were times where, of course, he has the authority to do that. But you see his humility, especially as you read the Gospel of John. He's always like, listen, I'm not about me. I'm doing exactly what the Father has shown me. I'm being completely obedient to the Father by doing these signs. And even the things that bring glory to him are bringing glory to the Father. Like, that's what he lives for. And so uh, he's God. And then he's a servant, and he's a human, he's obedient, but then obedience to the point of death. Mm -hmm. So he's not just living this lifestyle and then just like, okay, I'm done with this now. I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm going to go back to being, you know, this equality with God. But he dies and it takes it another step after that. He died a death on a cross. Yeah, there's lots of ways to die. The cross is the most shameful of them in those days. Yeah, cursed is he who hangs on the tree. Uh, the book of Galatians 3 actually emphasizes that passage that comes from the Old Testament. And Jesus was willing to take on sin and 
become this this curse of sorts and take on this crucifixion for the sake of his brethren. And so remember that in the background of this, this is what Paul's whole point is. How willing are you to humble yourself for the sake of your brethren and how far are you willing to go for them? Look at how far Jesus was willing to go. Mm-hmm. That's right. If your God is hanging on a Roman cross, where does that put you? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just amazing to think about that, the humility of God. And, you know, when we think about God himself um, and Jesus, his son, deity, um, you know, we think about, okay, God is powerful, God is merciful, God's loving, you know, all these things. But we think about God is humble. He's like the only being in the universe that wouldn't need to be humble <laughs> because he's God. He's literally perfect. And yet he is the perfect model of humbling himself by be- him coming to earth in the form of Jesus. It's mm-hmm. just remarkable, um, overpowering to think about um, this for any length of time. And the more you think, the deeper it goes. And so that's kind of the steps down. He's equal with God. He's a servant. He's a human. He's obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And then the exaltation. That's right. So verse 9, for this reason, God highly exalted him. Because he humbled himself, God is now going to exalt him. And there's kind of these steps up as well in verse 9 and 10. God exalts him. He gives him the name that's above every name. So that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so you kind of go from you've got the humility of Jesus to his exaltation to then our humility as we bow down to Jesus in his exaltation. And Paul reassures everyone in, in verse 10 and 11, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I, I know what you might be thinking. Well, I look out at a world where there's a lot of people not doing that. And there's a lot of people from generations past who never bowed down at the feet of Jesus and, and you know confessed his name. But there will be a day coming where every knee will bow and every mouth will confess Jesus is Lord. Whether they realize it now or not, that's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the day of the Lord that we already talked about back in chapter 1, 3 through 11. Yeah, you can bow now or you can bow later. That's right. And there are two very different outcomes of those ways of life. But that really is amazing to think about. Like every president, uh, you know, every, you know, gas station attendant, every talk show host, uh, just every person you've ever seen or known in person or on TV or the internet or whatever, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the choice we're left with is I I need to do that now and start living in a, you know, uh, consistently with that reality that Jesus is king because at the end, God will show him to be king. And, but if you haven't committed yourself to him at that point, it'll be too late. So will you choose to humble yourself mm-hmm. or will you be forced to humble yourself is right. the question. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Right. But he who exalts himself will be humbled. Yeah. And Jesus is the perfect example of self-humiliation and God exalting him. And I also think it's really interesting. He talks about the name that is above every name and at the name of Jesus you might think that the name above every name is is God's personal name. Sometimes, you know, we pronounce it Yahweh or Jehovah. But instead of those things, it's like Jesus is the name here, which is a normal name, you know, the name Joshua. Um, but because of what Jesus did, his is the name that is going to be put above all names. 
And again, I do think this goes back to deity, like the name, the name that is above every name is ultimately the name of deity. And yet Jesus is exalted, like he prays in John 17, exalt me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. This is powerful to think about that, that Jesus in his, in his humanity is now exalted to the right hand of God and is given the name above every name. And so we ask again, what are we willing to do for our brethren? Are we willing to serve them? Are we willing to humble ourselves? And if you just practically think about it too, what brings more joy? Being the kind of person that takes and takes, takes and takes and takes. And I'm sure we could all just take a second to think about somebody. Think, think about somebody who has spent their lifetime earning and getting and earning and getting and serving themselves and constantly just self-indulgence, getting what they want. And then I want you to think about somebody in your life who spent their lifetime serving other people, giving what they had to others, and ask yourself, out of those two individuals, who has more joy? Who, who is more fulfilled in life? It's the person who gave. And so it starts with our ability to recognize, I need to stop living for myself and I have to serve others. That's when I will find true joy, is when I submit to Jesus and I say, you know what, I will lay everything down at your feet and I will serve other people. And so Paul is emphasizing to these brethren their continued need to do that. Uh, they've already done this at the start when Paul helped start this congregation, but they need to keep doing this. And as Stephen already emphasized, he's going to get more specific to two women in chapter 4 who need to do this. Mm-hmm. I love what he says in verse 5, let this mind be in you. Yeah, That is the, the exhortation of this. Meditate on the mind of Christ and what he did in, humi- in humili- humbling himself. And then go and do likewise. So Lord willing, we will pick up in chapter 2, verses 12 through the end of the chapter next week. We're going to get to talk about being lights in the world and in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as well as learn a little bit about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their relationship with the church at Philippi. So we'll pick up there next week, Lord willing. Yeah, thank you all so much for listening today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. That'll help us reach more people. Um, if you're interested in studying the Bible with us, please reach out. We'd love to talk with you, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.